Best Book Bits podcast that brings you Kate Eisler, an activist, wife, author, mother, parent, friend, business person, sister, and risk taker. Working as a tech executive for Microsoft, Kate's work took her all around the world with her husband as they raised three sons. Kate's most recent adventure, launching an e-commerce platform for women-owned businesses, the W Marketplace, and writing her first book, Breaking Borders, a remarkable story of adventure, family, and career success that defied all expectations. Kate, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. No worries. Now, great book, uh, Breaking Borders. I have read it. Um, you dedicate it to uh, Doug and the boys, but who and what is your council? Oh my gosh. I have a council of women that are, you know, some of them sisters, some of them soul sisters. And I consider them, you know, my go-to when I need encouragement, when I am, when I need to be told the truth, whether that's something I would really love to hear or not. I go to my council, and so it is a group of women and a couple of men that I have on my council. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for telling us that. And um, let's go back. So your, your book starts with uh, your, your story. It's, it's more of a, a memoir uh, about your life, and yeah, what an amazing adventure that you have. So take us back to your early years growing up uh, in a hotel as your father was the, uh, the innkeeper. Where did you grow up, and where did you move around to? So when we think about growing up in a hotel, there is um, a view of nice hotels, right? Hyatt, Marriott, Global Hotels, good ones. That was not my experience. It was actually more of a motel, and it was the Holiday Inns. And so I grew up in a lot of different places. My father um, was transferred every two or three years. And so I grew up, started in the south, and then moved west, um, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, a little bit of California, back to the back to New Mexico, lots of different places. So everywhere, um, I kind of think of where I grew up. Room four twenty two. <laughs> so yeah, sure. well, and what was some of your? Do you remember some of your early uh, early jobs? I know in the book you mentioned uh, quite a few and and quite a few travels. What were some of your early jobs and uh, early adventures on? Yeah, so the first company I owned was a rafting company on the Colorado River. And so that was great fun. And, you know, I had some early, um, really exciting jobs like a bus girl, you know, sort of in a restaurant, those sorts of things, fast food restaurants. Um, the interesting thing was, is living in a public place like a motel, you learn to be very observant of people and watch what's happening. And your skills in business, I think, develop quite early just because I was in the public place all the time. And so I learned how people worked and how they worked well and how they didn't work very well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I guess growing up with the the public and meeting lots of different characters and people, your perceptions then you sort of would be uh, in tuned more with the with the general public early on, which was definitely a trait that comes out later in the book uh, in your life as well. So you graduated from Colorado Mountain College. Um, you had a heartbreak with a guy named Mark. What did you do after that? So I did. I graduated with my AA, so a two-year degree. Um, I decided that I needed to do something completely different in a completely different place. And so I picked Seattle on a map and I packed up a five-by-eight trailer and set out for Seattle, which was you know, it was, it was kind of crazy. I knew one person here, but why not? 
Tell us the story how you met uh, your husband, Doug. Uh, was it in the Photoshop, I think? It was. So when I showed up here, so my AA degree, my associate degree was in photography, fine art photography, which there's not a huge market for. But at the time, there were one-hour film processing plants everywhere. And, you know, they were in retail stores and they were everywhere. And so when I moved to Seattle, I got a, you know, a job working in one of these one-hour film processing stores. And it was a direct-to-consumer store. And this guy walked in the walked in the shop and he was kind of cute and he gave me a hard time and he teased me and then he showed up the next day and kind of wouldn't go away and asked me out and that was um, gosh I want to say lots of decades ago but he's still my husband. <laughs> yeah, it's a great story and uh, yeah, we expand on it a little bit in the book. Um, I love how the book you you go through some of your stories, but then you stop and talk about some of the lessons. So I just want to read some of the lessons out there for people listening. So lesson number one, uh, you wrote, you never know who you'll meet that would change your life. Be ready to listen and be open to new experiences. Um, it's a similar lesson that I, I give some coaching clients when I do coaching. I'd say, you never know who's going to be on your chessboard in the next 12 months that you might meet tomorrow. So be open to new opportunities. Um, do you want to expand on that with, with that particular lesson that you've learned? Uh, it's so powerful. You never know who you're going to meet that's going to change your life. You never know. You know, I have had uh, every single day that happens to me is you know, you meet someone like a guy who drops off film at a one-hour film store. Who would have thought? Um, down to people who now, you know, I meet and they have invested in my company or they've given me introductions to people. This happens every day. And I think that we forget because we're in such a hurry to accomplish the thing that we set out to do. We forget to look around and say, what's the context and who is this and where am I? And, you know, I spent so many years being too busy too busy to talk to people, too busy to engage. I was very targeted in what I was doing. And now when I am really take the time and spend a minute, it has delivered eightfold. I mean, it's crazy. I love to, you know, I'll talk to anyone. <laughs> it's, it's, you're right. It's tuning into people and tuning into opportunities, but so many times we're we tune ourselves out of people and opportunities and we think, oh, there's nothing to learn here or this, this, this person's not going to add value, but you never know what's going to happen. Some of the other lessons you talk about early on, uh, when a job doesn't feel right, it most likely isn't. Trust yourself and move on before you're pushed uh, to move or removed. Um, you've had a lot of jobs uh, early on. Um, yeah, expand on that lesson a little bit about if a job doesn't feel right. So we all have been there, right? We all know it. And you get in a job and you think, yeah, but the pay is good, but I don't like my team or the manager's bad, but I feel responsible. Or, you know, I, I listen to people every day tell me, well, I just took this job and I feel, you know, I ha I'm obligated for X amount of months or, and, you know, I would say, why? Because, you know, when you leave a job, they don't, I have never heard of anyone lamenting and spending a ton of time going, oh my gosh, you know, we wish that person was back. That's a rarity. What normally happens is you leave a position and they go, oh my gosh, that person, all the things that happened for the next month are definitely your fault. Definitely. And so I think that there is, you know, I, I, I don't mean to be so direct, but there is little thought when you leave a position about you and your feelings versus the amount of 
energy that, I mean, I know I did, and I know a lot of people do, put into, well, I don't want to disappoint my employer. I don't want to put them in a difficult position. They don't think the same about you. Yeah, yeah, it's totally true. And I've gone through those personal experiences myself. You give, uh, you always give a lot more than you get back, especially when you leave as well. Uh, you think that people actually think about you when they actually don't, but that, that is life. Uh, another lesson before we move on, you talk about sort of being a student of people, always pay attention to people around you. You will always learn something, uh, from it, which you discussed before. And the other one, which is quite funny, never get into a car with someone who doesn't have the keys. What do you mean by that? So that is true. So that guy I met at the film um, asked me out and turned up at the end of my work day with um, brand, obviously brand new clothes, right? Things that had yet to be washed, yet to be ironed, clean and new, and then took me to a car and got in the car and had no keys to the car reached under the dash. And so this is, this dates me a bit because it was a long ago, but you could hotwire a car underneath the steering wheel. And so he hotwired the car and took me out because he had borrowed the car from someone he was staying with because he was not from Seattle and took me out. And it's, you know, again, the romance began. Wow. Well, <laughs> talk about the romance. Uh, tell us a story about you proposing to Doug and him having to think about it. Oh my gosh, he still laughs about this. So um, he um, worked in Alaska and while he was in Alaska, had the opportunity and um, was offered a job actually in Southeast Asia and we were not married. And so he came home and said, this is a great job. I'm really excited. You know, we need to go. And I thought, great. And he's, you know, then that was followed by, and we'll come home and get married. And I said, hold on. I am actually not going anywhere out of this country because I had never left the country really, once to Canada. But you know, I had never been overseas and I thought I can't do that unless we're married. And so that's a no unless we're married. And his response rather than, oh my gosh, I love you, of course, was I'll need to think about it. And so he made me wait two days and casually then just said, so I guess we have to find a calendar and a date to get married romance all the way <laughs> and from that um, you went hawaii to philippines philippines to thailand what what happened there and uh throwing a, sh a shrimp farm as well oh so um it was actually in 1986 when the filipino government was in disarray and so we were sort of stopped from what we were doing because he is a fisheries biologist and so he was going to do a f shrimp farming project that was financed and ready to go in the Philippines. And when it wasn't, the, the backup project, the secondary project was in Thailand. And so we took our backpacks and left everything else in Hawaii and went to Southeast Asia. I mean, it was, it was a crazy adventure. Neither one of us had ever been outside the U.S. And it was just eye-opening and inspiring and terrifying all at once. But yeah, it, some of the stories you found yourself in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of nowhere and yeah. nothing around and just, yeah, crazy stories. And then you leave in Bangkok airport with newborn babies. What, what happened there? So, you know, let me put that in perspective is that it was 11 years after the end of the Vietnam War. So it was not, you know, people didn't travel to Southeast Asia for tourism. There wasn't a big um, accepted global travel for 
everyone. And so when you adopted babies, generally they were brought to this country by either an agency or someone from the orphanage or something. And so we happened to be in the airport past security and two um, of these workers approached us and asked us if we would help them manage these babies on this 12-hour flight from Bangkok. And so we thought, well, you know, we've had such an amazing experience and seeing things that we had never imagined that this was a great way to end that time. And so once the plane took off, they came to our seat, they handed us a very small baby. And whenever we needed anything, you know, we found, we went back to their area of the airplane and they've you know, had all the materials, and we had the honor of handing this baby to her adopted parents. You know, big party in the airport. It was so overwhelming and so wonderful. We thought, gosh, you know, that made such an impression on our lives that we changed our lives because of that moment. The segue in in and fast forward to another chapter, talk about how this experience led to um, you and Doug getting your own, um, uh, what's the word, uh, adopting Adopted. a child, adopt, adopting <laughs> yeah. a child and what, and what that experience is like. And then we'll, we can, we can circle back. So yeah, tell us about how that, that, that affected, you know, you and Doug, um, adopting another child. It was, it was such a meaningful experience that we thought right then and there, we want to build our family. And part of that is to include adopting a child. And so, um, we had a child and then we set out to say, okay, Time for a second one, let's adopt. And we had a very difficult time with it. We were in the US and we were too healthy, too young, too, you know, white, basically. There was no ethnicity. It was just, you know, we we were disqualified at every turn. And so we kind of gave up that thought for a while. And while we were living overseas, we met a lot of families that were families made up of children from all over the world. And we had another opportunity. I had um, a knee injury that was chronic and I had had some trouble. And so we decided, well, let's give this another shot and ended up adopting our son, our second son from Romania, who is such a gift. You know, I, I have to say it's so wonderful. And he is my heart. And How so, old is he now? He is 27 years old. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, let's go circle back to, um, yeah, leaving, um, leaving Bangkok and coming back home. So you talk about some of the lessons. Uh, leadership's about having people want to follow you rather than focusing on how you will lead them. Uh, can you expand on sort of some of your lessons you learned early on in leadership? And then we'll get into uh, starting with Microsoft. Yeah. You bet. Um, so I had a really um, high-level job as a receptionist after I left the one-hour film. <laughs> so my, my career is obviously progressing really fast. <laughs> um, and I had exposure to executives because I was working for a sportswear company and I happened to be um, on an executive floor doing this job. And it gave me exposure to lots of different management styles from young executives. And it was so interesting that those that spent a lot of time explaining what you should do and ordering people around were not nearly as successful as those who demonstrated behavior and action and it was fabulous. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, that that's something I need to take with me. And in my next few positions, I saw that happen over and over. And so it was very informative as a young person 
to see that work. And I thought, you know, it is, it is so less effective to tell people than to show them. And it's, it, you know, it holds true. And I've, you know, not always been successful, but always tried to emulate that sort of good behavior. Seeing, but I was going to say, seeing sort of bad leadership or bad management early on leads you into the future to actually practice good management and good leadership as well. So you're always uh, in sort of impressed by the negative things that happen and say, that's, I'm not going to, once I get into a management position or leadership position, I'm definitely not going to do those things that made me feel like this uh, in the past. Uh, moving on yet, yeah, lots of lessons uh, through there as well, but I'll jump to Microsoft. So HR getting the job. Um, yeah, you thought you were going to faint. What was the story of that, of landing your first job with Microsoft? Oh, well, um, I am. I was not the obvious choice for a job in technology. Let's just put it out there, right there. Um, I had worked for this ad agency um, and took over a, a job for someone who had gone to work for what she called a startup. Never met this woman. Um, she called me one day and said, listen, I know the job you're doing there and we need, at, at this startup, we need people to do that sort of job. Are you interested? And so I said yes and went through an interview process that I talk about a lot, but um, you know, all of a sudden got a, a job offer that was, in my mind, incredible. I mean, it was more money than I had asked for because it was the days where you filled out a, a paper application and sent it in to them or took it to your interview. So I did that and they offered me a job and I was floored. I was like, well, okay, here we go, why not? So the startup, so Microsoft, and when I started, there were about 3,000 people worldwide. So not very big, but yeah. And a really um, fast moving company intent on changing the world. And that was the most exciting thing about it. Yeah, in uh, in the book you talk, you started working at Microsoft um, in 1989, which for a lot of people is a long time ago. At the time, the company was a medium-sized technology startup uh, in the suburbs of Seattle. Um, you talk about in the book, from the moment you walked in the door, there was a feeling of urgency and that everyone uh, was needed. Technological and marketing talent was both required to deliver Bill Gates's vision. Now, his vision was a computer on every desk in every home. Uh, there was no playbook to follow. It was just up to you to write as you went, it was empowering and exciting. Yeah, talk about those early days on, on what that was like with, you know, obviously Bill's vision and, and the growth of the company. What was um, what was his sort of highlights and looking back there, any, any fun stories? Absolutely. You know, it was really fun, first of all, because we didn't know what we were doing. I don't think anyone did, you know, and you think about that now and you think about a computer on every desk and in every home. And now we think in every pocket and in every car. But that was not where we were. And so a computer was, you know, very um, coveted and usually really big and expensive. And so we were changing the world. And it was exciting because, you know, we had to figure out where to sell them, who that would who would be interested that you could speak common language to to understand what would a computer do for you. And so we spent a lot of time sort of strategizing on what to say and how to say it. And I remember one time I was in a meeting and I, I'm not sure if I talked about this, but I was in a meeting um, with a bunch of people, smart people, and we were trying to figure out how to entice a retail channel to sell software. 
you know, what's it going to do? And we were thinking of all these sales and all these advertising opportunities. And um, I had a, a box of Excel, like a mock-up box of Excel. And we were like, let's advertise this in a reseller publication. And the guy threw it across the room at me and said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> So, you know, they were not about to do that. And so we figured out just amazing ways to put computers in schools and, you know, everywhere we could think of. And I do have one other sort of fun Microsoft story. It was incredible. I had a office with a window and there was kind of a courtyard, a grass area outside. And so I was sitting there one day and we got an email from Bill Gates that said, you know, we're all going to celebrate and we're all going to celebrate in the courtyard. And they, you know, Bill and Steve threw a pizza party because we had made some, you know, to us, it was like a million dollars. It was a crazy amount. You know, you think of them now. It was so much fun, though. And they brought the whole company into that that grassy area and ate pizza and drank beer. And it was just one of those things that, you know, you worked hours and hours and hours trying things out that worked, some things that didn't. But, you know, to have that celebration and that have that one-on-one, -on -one, it was fabulous. It was really fun. Yeah, and looking back now, obviously, those those moments uh, in time and where the company's gone and where Bill's gone as well, I'm sure being a part of that 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 freight train would have been an awesome experience. Um, mm -hmm. You talk about one funny story that you nearly lost your job. So talk about the story about releasing Windows 3.0 before the <laughs> announcement. Um, yeah, what happened there? Well, you know, part of being a smaller company and the pace in which we work, there are a lot, not a lot of checks and balances. So there just isn't. And I, my first six months there, I was in charge of releasing and advertising the new mouse. It was the first time that a mouse had been sold without a graphics type program. And so I, you know, worked with a photographer. We shot this great campaign. We did, you know, all this work and Windows, the release of Windows like 3.0 was moved multiple times, the release date. And so every time that would happen, we would have to call the publishers of magazines to pull advertising. And I had produced this beautiful ad of the mouse and Windows 3.0 and was traveling with the head of the hardware division, doing focus groups for now, even funnier, a mouse that would work with a laptop because ours didn't, they didn't have ports to them. And so what we were cutting edge there, right? And we were in an airport in San Francisco and the guy went and bought a reseller news magazine and was flipping through it and found an insert of the mouse with Windows 3.0, and it was six weeks before the launch of Windows 3.0. Talk about, I, I wanted to die right there. I mean, my heart just dropped, and it was the longest flight. So from San Francisco to Seattle, it's about two hours, and that was about 100 years worth of a flight. And I went back and had to do a mitigation plan, you know, damage control and tell everyone because... Everyone that got that started calling customer service and started calling retail stores thinking, oh, great, we can get Windows 3.0 now because it was um, the worst kept secret that we were launching the biggest launch in the company's history. And I tried to say I saved everybody money. You know, you don't have to do the launch now. I've already announced it. 
didn't quite work that way. So you pack your bags, you told Doug that uh, you're about to get fired and uh, you waited for the right moment. But what, what happened after that? And uh, what did they tell you? So it was really interesting. I really did think that was the end of my career. You know, they wanted to make sure that I had done this plan and then they were going to say, thanks, you're not one of us. Um, the Monday morning I came in and my boss had been out, that, that had been a Friday, had, she came in the office with the magazine, showed it to me at my desk again without a word. And I said, yep, and here's all the things that I've done to fix it. And her comment to me was, don't ever let that happen again. And to me, talk about leadership. That was all that was said. I wasn't, it wasn't brought up continually. It wasn't, you know, how could you have done it? You know, it was a one-time thing. Figure out what you're going to do to fix it and how you're going to communicate. And that to me was such incredible leadership because I learned my lesson and boy, I never did it again. And I learned to, you know, actually sort out a mitigation plan in the company and it stuck with me, and I have a picture of the ad actually in the book. I found it because I thought it was so good. And the date, you know, is six weeks before the big launch event that happened on stage in New York. And so it's it's good that you, you talk in the book as well. People make mistakes, acknowledging the mistake and moving forward will facilitate recovery. Continue to review a mistake, destroy a team, or a project every time. And, and time heals everything. Like the the launch. Um, it happened. It was successful. It was forgotten about, and then and then moving on uh, as well. Um, your travels and adventures in the book uh, are amazing. W- what was the story behind Dubai, and how did you land the the gig in Dubai working for Microsoft? So um, I received an email about a guy that I knew and didn't necessarily think was all that great. And the email was about a promotion that this person was getting, and he was moving to Paris. And I thought, if he can do that, what the heck? I can do that. And so I kind of raised my hand and started talking to people about, I want an international career. And I did, you know, everything I could to be in front of everyone that visited corporate from everywhere around the world. What's your job like? Tell me what I could do. And sort of started to advocate for myself about how great I would be in an international position. And it was only a few months and I got a call that said, hey, we have a job that we think would be interesting for you. And I was like, oh, do tell you. I'm so excited. And they said, well, it's in the Middle East. I said, oh, you know, I was thinking sort of Paris, you know, London, maybe Sydney, English speaking fun. And they said, okay, well, let's just, you know, see how that goes. And I talked my husband into going to buy just to look. And I, you know, ended up really talking to him into what I said was two years. It would be like a great adventure and we'd have a great time. It was about a year after the first Gulf War and we had a two-year-old son. And so it was quite the adventure. He was quitting his job and becoming the only trailing male spouse for tens of thousands of miles. Yeah, that's right. In the book as well, I just want to acknowledge, obviously, Doug did um, finish up his job and he ended up, um, I mean, you both raised the children, but he was he was the stay-at-home dad, so to speak, uh, traveling the world, following around uh, yourself. So, yeah, an amazing story of uh, of switching roles as well. And I think it's uh, it's a testimony to yourself and to Doug as well on on how you um, how you sort of did it your own way. And uh, it was it really shown through the book as well. So, yeah, really, really, really cool on that. Um, some of the lessons I got, well, some of the lessons you wrote in the book that 
I thought were important was you said make the time to build a network that is wide and strong before you need it. It will deliver value to your career and personal development. You will learn things you didn't even know you needed. So yeah, one of my massive, I've got a massive quote just in front of us, which is your network is your net worth. Talk about how important it is to, to build those strong connections with with people, not necessarily just for career, but also personal life as well with uh, your network. Unbelievably important. It is the single most important thing. And I was told that and didn't believe it. Again, in the in the times where I was too busy, where I thought I was too busy to do that. I had a great network within Microsoft. But when I left there, I didn't. You know, and all of a sudden I didn't have a network. And it took a few years to start to build that. And what I know now is I am absolutely motivated and inspired and I learn things every single day from people I never expected to. But you have to make the effort and it is the hardest thing. You know, I'm an extrovert most of the time and I have no problem talking to people. Put me in a room full of 50 people and say, go network. I cannot do it. I just, it's such a hard thing and I have to really concentrate on making that happen. And I know, especially for women, that is a very difficult position, but you never know where you will benefit from that. And I have gained friends and I have gained colleagues and, you know, I have attracted people to work for me or work with me on different things amazing by actually just putting myself in that super uncomfortable position when I didn't want to. And so I am a huge advocate of that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, circle back to, I took some notes before what you said and it really resonated. You said, if he can do it, I can do it. The power of seeing someone else that's in your mind less qualified or not good at something, going to that next level, you go, hang on a second. I'm I'm better, I'm smarter, I know I can do it. So sometimes that experiencing life is a great motivator to take the next leap forward and say, why not? Um, I've got all the attributes, all the qualities, all the skill set and the mindset as well. So that that was a, a that was, that's a really, really good motivation to look around you and see who's doing bigger things that you should be doing and use that as motivation and fuel to, to take yourself to that next level. But another, another two word thing that you wrote that you said before was self advocating the power of self advocating. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit and, and talk about sort of how women don't and how they should self advocate for themselves and their roles. And, you know, you say in the book as well, if you want something, go after it. Uh, women frequently start from uh, what they are qualified for instead of focusing on all their attributes they can bring so yeah can you expand on self-advocating and the the power of that you bet so there's two things those two things are so closely wrapped up because i believe and in my experience i've seen women self-select out multiple times of things they really want and it's generally because they don't have you know they don't believe they have a great foundation they don't have the network they don't have the financial backing or people depend on them you know, and I always think all those things are true. I am, I am very much a, I had, you know, we go back to, I grew up in a motel, not a good network, not a good foundation, but I have always thought, well, you know, why not me? Really? Why not me? And what are those reasons? I think that you have to acknowledge that it is uncomfortable to put yourself in a position where you are don't think you have all those skills. I think that 
you should never underestimate what you can learn. You know, the whole fake it till you make it, but it's true. And what you can, what you really believe you can do. And I think that self-advocating and telling yourself, instead of here are all the things that I don't have, here are all the things that I do have. And, you know, I think it's one of those, I've, I've spent a lot of time saying, those requirements are great. Let me tell you how I would handle that. So they might not be what's listed, but let me tell you how well I could do at that job. And so when I think about, you know, when I first did that at, you know, going to Dubai, I don't, I didn't have any of that international experience that would have been really ideal for that. I didn't have any language skills, but, you know, I told them, here's what I do have and here's what I think I could offer. And I have done that time and time again. And so I think that just saying I am going to advocate and I would say one really important piece of that for a woman is don't always think about that just at work so that self-advocation when you want to do something that disrupts your life like for me it was we need to move to take this opportunity it was probably the hardest conversation I had was with Doug at home saying I want to change our whole lives it wasn't, I want an opportunity at work because, you know, the consequences, the stakes are a little lower, no matter what it is professionally than if it's personally. But, you know, you need to acknowledge that that is a high risk, uncomfortable decision, but self-advocate to your family and to your friends about what you want to do just as hard as you would for a job. Yeah, this, there's there's so much to, to take out of that, but yeah, back yourself and, you know, the world, the world is unknown and, you know, we run off past scripts and we think just because it has been, it has to be this way, but you can stop, pause, reflect, put the car in reverse and actually say, you know what, you need to sort of jump with two feet sometimes instead of just tiptoeing around. Uh, life's, life's best things come from leaps, uh, leaps into the chasms of the unknown. So talk about what happened after Dubai. Where did you go? Where did the role lead you? What, what were the sort of some of the experiences that you had after that? So we went to London and we were based in London because I worked in Africa and I worked all over Africa, India, the Middle East, Greece, Turkey, all of sort of Southern, um, Europe and Africa, which I laugh because Microsoft used to draw its own map for the regions. And so it wasn't like an EMEA like everyone else. Uh, we just didn't. <laughs> so I went there for a while and then I came back to the U.S. But, you know, the other thing that I think is super important is when you think about career progression, it isn't always forward progression. And so I experienced a lot of that. And so when we talk today, we talk about, you know, we're, we're talking about what sounds like forward motion all the time, but I really want to point out, and I talk about this in the book, I had some massive backward steps and some sideways steps and decisions that I made that were not great. And so, you know, I think that's a reality of a career that doesn't get talked about a whole heck of a lot, that we just assume it's, you know, you wrote a book because it was all great. I did not. I wrote a book because it was all real and, you know, unique. And so I left Microsoft after I, you know, went to London for a while and had a really personal event that I, we lost a child and made decisions about this that were very hard and I wanted to come home. And I came back to the US and realized that I just couldn't get myself together. 
and didn't like it until left Microsoft at the time. And um, yeah, you settled into um, sort of normal life for a little bit, but uh, then you went back to Microsoft and then you left and then you started as a startup CEO. Yeah, talk about sort of what happened after, after Microsoft and, and, and what you did after that. So I did, and I left the second time. So I went back, and I went back to Munich and um, worked in Central Asia and Eastern Europe. You know, I always picked the really hospitable places for women to work. It was fabulous. <laughs> so, um, and then ended up coming back to the States um, after another almost 10 years. Um, and I was at the lowest point possible, really. I was like, oh my gosh, I might be worthless because I stayed too long at my job. I was not, you know, I should have left because I did all the things that I just warned against. I said, you know, people depend on me. I couldn't, you know, couldn't possibly make a change. And, you know, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And so I did. And I tried to get a job and I was really unsuccessful because people kept asking me where, when I graduated from university. And I had to say, I didn't. And so I'm happy to say that I am now a 2018 university graduate. And so I did go to university finally, and I wrote this book because I felt so terrible. And I just started writing, and it was such a cathartic, great experience to say, oh my gosh, maybe I'm not that bad. Maybe I have something to share that wasn't always success, but, you know, continued to work on it. And so I continue to work on it. And so... I started um, hosting International Women's Day in Seattle with a with my co-founder who was from Europe and we needed a pick-me-up one January. And so we decided to look for an event, couldn't find one, ended up hosting it because of course, how hard can that be, I thought. And so, and then 2020 happened. And I really started hearing and reading like all of us that women were suffering so, um, disproportionately from this economic impact and that everyone around the world was online shopping. And I was like, okay, there are a few guys making all the money and I couldn't help it. And so I'm like, again, why not me? So I started an online e-commerce business for women-owned businesses. And we now have over 500 women-owned businesses on the platform and about 4,000 products. Yeah, wow. And that's called the W Marketplace. Is that correct? That's exactly right. It is. Well, all and one who, word. And who is your newest investor that people might know of? This is so fun. Um, we were um, asked. We we were asked by a pl the platform we were raising money on because we're doing a crowdfund campaign because we feel like women are so often kept out of the investment and the benefit of equity investment because they're not accredited investors. And so we're crowdfunding on a platform called WeFunder. And they asked if we would be interested in an introduction. Somebody wanted to meet us. Sure, why not? My co-founder and I jumped on a call um, because we talked to investors every day, all day. And these guys were like, you know, we represent Damon John. And we're like, okay, you know, perfect. Let's just do this. And so we went through this hour call and they were like, oh, you know, he's really going to love this. We'd like to have another call. 
like, okay. And we got off the phone and thought, we should know who this is. This is so crazy. And so we Googled him and went, oh my gosh. You know, I have to admit, I don't watch the Shark Tank because I feel like I live it. And so I was like, oh my gosh. And so we have ended up, we spent some time with him and he highlighted us um, as his featured investment to his on his private investment group for angels and entrepreneurs. It's called for all of Women's History Month for March. And so it was really exciting and really fun. And it it is quite an endorsement to say, listen, we're on to something, that there are other channels for e-commerce besides the big one. Yeah, I think you're in the right marketplace as well, especially my wife and a lot of women, yeah, love online shopping and browsing and especially a platform uh, for women, by women, supporting women as well. I think that they would gravitate and move towards those bigger platforms to, you know, um, the women only ones as well. But yeah, you also, yeah, I, I like how going back just a, a few steps, you talked about not finishing college and you went back and then someone said there's something wrong with your resume because the dates don't line up and you're like, no, no, they're, they're correct. Um, and then the other thing about how you stumbled across the community of, um, of the IW, you know, the IWD, uh, the event and how there was nothing going on. So you thought, you know what, we're going to host this for the for the second one. And then that led you towards now you're on the global board of Girl Rising. What, what's that about? Girl Rising is, is an amazing organization that is supporting girls' education around the world. Because when you educate a girl, a girl will put that education to work and invest in her community and her family. And we have seen that communities are stronger, better economics, better health for families when that happens. And so many places around the world, education is not a given. You know, we both live in Western societies where it is. But if you've looked now or listened to any of the news on Afghanistan, things are moving backwards. Girls and women are no longer allowed in schools and many workplaces. And so it is vitally important. And so, you know, really I have found my calling is because, you know, when I, I really never realized that I was unique in the why not me thinking. And so I now am a huge advocate for why not me? Why can't I do something for girls' education? Why can't we celebrate women and girls for IWD? We're in our seventh year of that. This year marked our seventh year celebration. You know, I, I am like, you know, I think if we all thought, why not me? It would be a very different world. And, you know, my, my slogan in my life these days is women supporting women will actually change the world. I'm and women supporting women has the added benefit of helping men as well. Just like men helping men, it drips down to women, but women will change the world. Uh, I can definitely attest that. I interviewed a, a lady the other week who, who works with uh, adolescent um, adolescent girls on showing them their superpowers as well. So there's there's this push now for you know, female empowerment and the world needs it because the world needs to heal and the world needs to be balanced with that you know, with, with women. Uh, I think it's been ran too long by men and we can see how men have ruined the world, not ruined the world, but yeah, how disastrous and destructive they can be. But anyway, I think it's a, probably a good time to wrap. So for my audience out there, yeah, check out uh, the book. Where can people uh, learn more about yourself, Kate, follow you, buy the book and, and get inspired by your platform as well? 
Well, I would love for them to buy the book on the W Marketplace. It is available on Barnes Noble and on Amazon. Um, so pick your poison <laughs> with that. Um, it's available basically on all major platforms. But And they can follow and connect with me on any social media platform. I'm at Kate Eisler. And so very easy. And I, you know, I love the fact that I've had the opportunity to write this book and to talk to people about it. Because again, you know, I hope that it inspires women and men to be bold and to follow their ambition and make mistakes. And it's okay. They can still be successful. Absolutely. And probably one of the last quotes so I'll take you, you said before, uh, self-select out. People need to self-select in. So get into the game of life, take some chances um, and yeah, back yourself. But yeah, Kate, thanks for being a guest on the Best Book Bits podcast. Uh, thank you for doing all that you've done and thank you for sharing uh, your story and your book as well. And I'll do everything I can to, to get it out to, to my audience and marketplace as well. So enjoy the rest of your day and yeah, thanks for being a guest. I'll speak to you thank soon. Thank you. All right. No worries at all.